Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. All right, we are starting Hebrews chapter 7 today, and this is an exciting chapter as the Lord is starting to complete a thought that he started all the way back in Hebrews chapter 4 about Jesus as our high priest. And he is hitting on this so much from chapter 4 on and 5 and 6 and now opening chapter 7 with it that you've really got to take the Holy Spirit and petition him to teach you everything about why is the Lord hitting on the priesthood of Jesus in this aspect so deeply for us as a church today because surely we're not under the law anymore that is true and we're going to touch on that a lot here but what is it about Jesus's priesthood that the Holy Spirit wants us to learn out of this? So the Lord's titled this message an endless priesthood because certainly that's what Jesus has for us is an endless priesthood. And as soon as you understand that and you really come to grips with you have a high priest that has no beginning and no ending and is forever making intercession on your behalf in the throne room of the universe as your representative it will change how you act and what you take to him and what you try to do under your own power because he has an endless priesthood. So 1 John 2, 27 and 28, 2, 27 and 28, but the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you and ye need not that any man teach you. And so that's what we're leaning on as we continue to uncover and unpack the priesthood of Jesus. But as the same anointing teacheth you of all things and is truth and is no lie, and even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. You know, that abiding is so important, to abide in the Lord, to stay close to, to cling to. And remember, that's how that first warning started, the danger of drifting when you're not clinging to any longer. So we have to have confidence, and we have that through the anointing. Now, the outline of the book, as we've been progressing through here, we have a new and a better priestly covenant and it really started all the way back up in chapter 4 as you see a priest better than Aaron. And it continues again for another three chapters beyond chapter 7. And Jesus' priesthood offered a better sacrifice for it was once and for all. It provides better promises and it opens the sanctuary for all of us that are in him. It's an open house when that veil was torn. And so we're covering that part of, of scripture today. And as you can see, there's only 13 chapters in Hebrews, and so we're, we're making progress. We might be able to get through this book with, in less than a year. <laughs> so, so Hebrews uh, chapter 7, verse 1, it starts out, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. Okay, so the Lord is opening up with a tie back to Melchizedek again, the king of of Salem. And all the way back in chapter 4, God's word closed with the theme of Jesus being our high priest. Look at the last three verses of chapter 4. Hebrews 14, 414. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession, for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities but was in all points tempted, like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. So notice in chapter 4, he's linking Jesus as our high priest to coming boldly into the throne room. That opportunity is afforded to you because Jesus is our high priest. And so that's why he's hitting on this so much. He's our counselor. He's our high priest. We can go to him with anything. 
And chapter 5 continued discussing his high, the high priesthood of Jesus. Verse 1 in chapter 5, For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. The high priest, remember, was ordained by God. It was a calling. It was not something you just chose to do. You didn't just raise your hand and say, hey, I'd like to be the high priest. You were called out of a specific tribe and even more specifically a certain family, the family and lineage of Aaron through the tribe of Levi. In verse 2, who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. So the Greek word here for ignorant, it literally means to err or sin through mistake to be wrong. So who can have compassion on us who have erred or caused sin? That's what Jesus is doing. He's having compassion on us because he was tempted in every way we are tempted and tried and yet withstood the enemy. And again, one of my favorite quotes is, only he who fully withstands the extent of temptation from the enemy can know its power. And none of us have that privilege. Only one does, and that's Jesus. So the Greek word for on them that are out of the way, it means to lead away from the truth, to lead into error, to deceive, to be led into error, to be led aside from the path of virtue, to go astray, sin, to sever, or fall away from the truth. It's really speaking of heretics. And throughout the book of Acts, the Christian walk was often referred to as the way, to have compassion on those that are out of the way. That's what he does as our high priest. He's having compassion on us. If we venture from the way, from the book of Acts. In verse three, back in chapter five, and by reason hereof he ought, as for the people, so also for himself to offer for sins. So don't ever forget 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. He is the only one, the man. He had to become a man, fully God and fully man. Randy and I were talking about this this weekend, just how we've, we've heard some people talk about how when Jesus became a man, he had to lay down his divinity and become a man. And it's, it's not true. He was fully God and fully man. If he was only a man and set aside his divinity, it's just another man dying. And that doesn't solve anything. So don't, don't let people, you know, try to propagate that lie in your life uh, that he had to lay down his divinity for some reason. He had to keep it on, otherwise it meant nothing. So praise God that he did. And no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. So remember, Aaron was the first high priest called by the Lord to this office. He never sought it. It was not based on merit or position that was earned. It was a calling. It was a calling. So the Levitical priesthood, and all of this is, is some review on Melchizedek and the Levitical priesthood because it's important. God opens chapter 7 with making that connection again. So Aaron was singled out by God and called into the priesthood. That's all in Exodus 28. He was reconfirmed in that office. Remember his rod blossoms in number 17. Korah and those rebellious families led a rebellion against Moses and Aaron because they thought, well, we're called too. We can be just as special. Yes, they were called, but they weren't called into what they were called into. And so keep that in mind, too. When you're looking at the body of Christ, people are called into different capacities. So don't let the enemy lie to you and, and try to convince you that, well, your calling is not as great as somebody else's calling. You have a role and a responsibility in the kingdom. We all do. And so you need to take that seriously. Remember in number 16, Korah led that rebellion Saul attempted to take the role of the priest and perform his own sacrifices. And as a result, God rejected him as king and anointed David in 1 Samuel 13. The kings, what I want you to get out of this too, the kings and the priests were never to commingle from the Israelites on, from Jacob on, they were never to commingle. As soon as they did, there was trouble. 
but yet Melchizedek was a king and a priest we're going to look at, and Jesus is a king and a priest. And so there's something unique about this Levitical priesthood that was temporary, and that's the point the Lord is making. Like Saul, King Uzziah tried to take on the role of a priest and burn incense. In response, the Lord struck him with leprosy until the days of his death, and that's all in Second Chronicles. And they were never to commingle. That's why God struck them down in Israel all the time. They were never to commingle. In chapter 5, verse 6, as he saith also in another place, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So he's linking Melchizedek all the way back in chapter 5. And it's a direct quote from Psalms 110, verse 4. The Lord hath sworn he and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And here in chapter 7, as we're opening chapter 7, he's developing a comparison between the Levitical priesthood and the priesthood of Melchizedek, which is very mysterious. And if it wasn't for Psalms 110 and the book of Hebrews, you really would probably miss that there was something special about Melchizedek that the Lord wants us to draw out as a comparison to Jesus. So Melchizedek, he was a foreshadowing of Christ's priesthood, and and the Lord's going to build this comparison here. Psalms 110, which is all about Melchizedek, it's quoted throughout the New Testament. Verse 1 is quoted 25 times alone. Verse 4 is quoted four times, including the one in Hebrews 5, 6. And the entire psalm is central to understanding the better high priest we have in Jesus. So remember in Psalms 110, verse 1, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. So that one verse alone, that sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool, it's the verse that Jesus uses to confound the lawyers in the New Testament, the religious zealots, remember, that thought, that he had no legitimacy or heir to the throne of David. Okay, and that's all in Matthew 22, starting in verse 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? And they say unto him, The son of David. And he saith unto them, How then doth David in spirit call him Lord? Saying, quoting Psalms 110, the Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. If David then call him Lord, how is he his son? And no man was able to answer him a word, neither durst any man from that day forth ask him any questions. And so he uses that verse. How can David, if he's the son of David, how can David call him Lord? Because he's the offspring of David. But he had to be both. He was preexistent long before David ever was, but yet in his humanity, he had to be the son of David to have the right to the throne of David. And that's because of 2 Samuel 7, starting in verse 12. And when thy days be fulfilled and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so he's talking about the throne of David. Now in Psalms 30 verse 4, and that whole concept is covered in Psalm 78 and Micah 5, but in Proverbs 30 verse 4, excuse me, not Psalms, who hath ascended up into heaven or descended, who hath gathered the wind in his fists, who hath bound the waters in a garment, who hath established all the ends of the earth. What is his name and what is his son's name? if thou canst tell. See, even in Proverbs, he's getting a hint that there's a son to come. Remember the angel Gabriel to Mary, and he comes and says, you're with child, and your child will sit on the throne of David. He's, he's, even before Jesus is born, he's making that link. Now, he sits on the throne of David. That never happened when he walked the earth for 33 years, give or take a few months. That never happened. He hasn't fulfilled that. He does fulfill that in the millennium. Praise God that we will have a righteous king. And we're going to touch on a minute on why righteousness must come before peace. There's an important pattern there in the Bible. In Psalms 102, verse 
110 verse 2, the Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion, rule thou in the midst of thine enemies, thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power and the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning, thou hast the dew of thy youth, the Lord hath sworn and will not repent, in other words, will not turn away from what he's promised, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so Psalms is making this link to Jesus and Melchizedek again. Now remember, repentance, just as a reminder, repentance has nothing to do with salvation. Repentance is to turn away from. That's all it means. So once you're saved and sealed by the Holy Spirit, you then have the authority and power over sin in your life to turn away from it. That's, that's the point. And so Lord, the Lord's not going to turn away from or repent from stating that Jesus will be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek first shows up in Genesis 14. And when you go all the way back there, if you remember, this is the battle between the five kings and the four. There's nine kings. There's nine kings, and Abraham gets involved in this all-out war in the Middle East. And this is where Melchizedek shows up for the first time in the Bible. And the 14th year came Chedorlaomer, and the kings that were with him, and smote the Rephaims in Ashtaroth, and the Zuzims in Ham, and the Emims in Shav Kerethim, and the Horites in their Mount Sur unto El Paran, which is by the wilderness. And they returned and came to Inmashat. I'm so sorry, I'm butchering these names probably which is Kadesh, and smote all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites and dwelt in Hazar, Zan, Tamar. And there went out of the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah and the king of Adma and the king of Zebuim and the king of Bela, the same as Zoar. Zoar means little in Hebrew. Remember when after Sodom and Gomorrah, when Lot is rescued and he he goes to the Lord and says, well, can I have that little city over there? It's but a small city. And he's talking about Zoar. And they joined battle with them in the Val of Siddim. That's like the Val, Valley of Slime Pits. With Chedorlaomer, the king of Elam, and with title, the king of nations. And Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elasar. Four kings with five. So get the picture, and I've got a chart in a second. There's four kings versus five kings. Four and five and they're coming out to battle in this valley. And the valley of Siddim was full of slime pits. And the king, kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and fell there. And they that remained fled to the mountain. And they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their victuals and went their way. And they took Lot. This is their problem. They took Lot, Abram's brother's son. So they took Lot's nephew, or Abraham's nephew, Lot who dwelt in Sodom and his goods and departed. And there came out one that had escaped and told Abraham, or Abram at the time, the Hebrew, for he dwelt in the plain of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and brother of Anar. And these were confederate with Abram. So they're coming out. They got, they've kidnapped Lot. The battle's over. The kings have dispersed. And one that survives runs to tell Abram, hey, there was this war, and they took your family. They took Lot, your nephew. So here's the chart, the battle of the nine kings from Genesis 14. The Shemites versus the Hamites. And so you have the four kings on the right, led by Chedorlaomer, and the five kings, I'm sorry, the left, and the five kings on the right, led by the king of Bela, the king of uh, Zoar, and they served Chedorlaomer. So all these kings served Chedorlaomer for 13 years. But in the 14th year, there was a rebellion. They, they didn't like something, so they decided to rebel and go to war. And so clearly there was a confederate of these five kings somehow coming together to go and take out the head guy. And notice the order of the list is important, and, and I'll just point this out one more time. But when you're reading the Bible, pay attention to the list, the order of these lists that the Lord, the way the Holy Spirit structures them, there's an importance there because Chedorlaomer was the head guy, but the Lord lists the king of Shinar first in that order. And it's to get your attention that there's something important about Shinar down the road. 
And that's when it later becomes Babylon with Nimrod and all of that with uh, the rebellion. And it's important because that same area of Babylon is ultimately in the tribulation rising back to power only to be destroyed by the Lord. We studied that in depth in Revelation. But that's why the Lord puts that there. Because Nimrod is a type, a foreshadowing of the Antichrist. Chetelomir is the, the head guy, but he, for some reason the king of Shinar is listed first. It's to get your attention. So Chetelomir wins and captures Lot. Okay, and then when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained servants, born in, in his own house, 318, and pursued them unto Dan. Okay, Abram is a, a stout guy. He's training his own army, his own militia. He's got 318 armed, hardened warriors in his own household that he musters to go get his nephew. This is not some, you know, sheep herder that's just hanging out in the, in the open fields in Israel, a timid guy with a staff. Abraham was a bad dude. You didn't want to get on his bad side. A lot of, a lot of scholars believe, actually, Abraham was one of the wealthiest men to ever live in the world at that time. So he divided himself against them. So he took the 318 and he split them. And his servants by night smote them and pursued them unto Haba, which is on the left hand of Damascus. Now, in the Bible, whenever the Lord says it's on the left hand of some city, east is always the cardinal direction in the Bible. It's always east. Everything is to the east. And so left hand would be north. Okay, if you're looking east, and and here, that'd be that way. If you're looking east, north would be... (laughs) To the left hand, right? So on the left hand of Damascus would mean north of Damascus. On the right hand would be south. Just keep that in mind. In verse 14, 16. And he brought back all the goods and also brought again his brother Lot and his goods and the women also and the people. So he mustered his own army, conquered a coalition of four kings that just went to war and beat out five kings. And yet his 318 trained soldiers came in and just wiped the floor with them. Just think about that. Abraham was an awesome, awesome guy that really stood up for righteousness. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him, and his return from the slaughter of Chedlamir, and of the kings that were with him in the valley of Shiva, which is the king's dale. And Melchizedek, so get this, Abraham and his 318 go out, they destroy these, fo- these four kings, They bring Lot and the women back, and all of a sudden, here comes this guy, Melchizedek, to meet Abraham, or Abram at the time. Remember, the Lord hasn't changed his name yet. When he changes his name, all he does is add the breath of God to him in the Hebrew, a a he, it's the letter H in Hebrew, and he puts it right in the middle of him. So that's all he does with Sarai and Abram, is that he adds the breath of God to them. He adds an H in their name. It's the same thing that happens to you when you get saved. You get the breath of God added to your life. So Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand. And he gave him tithes, of all. So Melchizedek comes and he administers bread and wine, which is odd. Where is this priesthood coming from? How did he know to administer bread and wine? That wasn't in the Bible yet. And Abraham is giving him tithes, which is incredible. So what is this priesthood? This is a priesthood long before the Levitical priesthood, before the law was set in. So it's the first place bread and wine is established in the Bible. And it's being administered by Melchizedek, king of Salem, which is Jeru-Salem. Jeru was was added later to that city. So Melchizedek is from Jerusalem, a priest and a king. And he's bringing forth bread and wine, and he's administering it to celebrate with Melchizedek. 
So bread and wine, that theme of bread and wine is carried throughout the rest of the Bible. And remember, it shows up next with Joseph in Genesis 40. While Joseph is in prison, the baker had the dream about the bread, and he was hung on a tree. If you remember, he's at, Joseph is in prison. There's the two guys, the baker and the butler. And the baker has the dream of bread. The butler had the dream about a vine with three shoots. And the baker represented the bread, which was to be murdered or slaughtered on our behalf. He was hung on a tree exactly like Jesus, hung on a tree, the cross. And it's the same concept as Jesus' broken body. The butler had the dream about a vine with three shoots off of it, and he was restored to be next to Pharaoh. And so keep that in mind. The body must be destroyed so the blood can be given. And at that point, once you administer the blood to your life, you too have a seat with the king, exactly like the, but, the butler. He had a seat restored next to Pharaoh. And that's, that's the opportunity we have, is that once you apply that to your life, you get a seat forever next to the king in the throne room of the universe. Praise God. So Melchizedek, his name, his name means king of righteousness, which is interesting. He receives tithes from Abraham. Levi, yet unborn, thus paid tithes to Melchizedek. And, and Hebrews 7 is going to build that case in a second. Through Abraham. So how is that? Well, remember, out the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, then the 13 them. So because Abraham is subservient to Melchizedek, Levi, his future descendant, thus pay tithes to Abraham. God's using it. It's a, it's a very rabbinical, like Hebrew kind of way of thinking, but that's how they think, and that's why the Lord is, is pulling this out. Melchizedek's only mentioned in two places, again, in the entire Old Testament, Genesis 14 and Psalms 110. He's a type, a model, or a foreshadowing of the king of righteousness, and there's only one king of righteousness. That's Jesus. Notice that in the Bible, Melchizedek has no genealogy. Death is not recorded. He has no mother or father named. He certainly did, and he died. Don't misunderstand, but the model that the Holy Spirit wrote in the text is to fit that model of Jesus, who having no mother or father has always been and always will be. He's got, he administered bread and wine, and like Jesus, he was a king and a priest. So the Holy Spirit again linked Jesus to Melchizedek. Remember the next chapter in Hebrews 6, we covered this in Hebrews 6.20. Whither the forerunner is for us entered even Jesus, made in high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And according to Psalm 76, verses 1 and 2, Salem is where God, Psalm 76, verses 1 and 2. In Judah is God known. His name is great in Israel. In Salem also is his tabernacle and his dwelling place in Zion. So he's in Salem. And all the way back in Genesis 14, he's there because Melchizedek is a king and priest in Salem of the Most High God, administering bread and wine and receiving tithes from people that are not even of his lineage. So we're, the Lord's going to build that case in a minute also. And Melchizedek, he's a complete foreshadowing of Jesus. So in verse 2 in Hebrews 7 now, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem which is to mean king of peace. So note the order of the interpretation of Melchizedek's name. First, a king of righteousness, then a king of peace. Righteousness, and that pattern is true for everything in your life. Righteousness must be established before peace is settled. If there's unrighteousness or sin somewhere, or something in your life that is distracting you from God, there will not be peace in that area. 
And so you have to keep this order in mind in everything you do. Now, the ultimate model of this will be the millennium with Jesus ruling and reigning on planet Earth. A king of righteousness will be established, then true peace will be ushered in. The millennial reign for a thousand years of peace. It's why when you hear all of these world leaders say exactly what the Lord says in the New Testament, as soon as they say peace and safety or peace and security, surely sudden destruction will come upon them. They are trying to issue issue and usher in a one world order of peace and security without the king. And it can't happen. That's why that order is set up in the Bible. A king of righteousness, then peace will be established. And if they, as long as they keep trying to do it, just think about that verse. Every time you hear one of them say, we need this for peace and security, just think instantly, oh my goodness, the Holy Spirit wrote this almost 2,000 years ago. As soon as they are saying peace and security, surely sudden destruction will come upon them because they want to do it without the king. It's a flee from accountability. Just like everyone that flees from getting saved in Jesus, it's always a flee from accountability. So in verse 3, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. So he's not saying that Melchizedek didn't have parents. What he's saying is that in the model, in the Bible, in the word of God, his parents were not called out. He had no genealogy. And it's exactly like Jesus. Jesus had earthly parents, but he's always been and he always will be. The Alpha and the Omega. So the Lord here is, he's going to now, what I want to go through, there's six similarities of Jesus and Melchizedek. And this is the first one he's touching on, that without parents. So similarity number one, Melchizedek was both a priest and a king, exactly like Jesus. He was the king of Salem, like, likely a descendant of the Jebusites. Now, why do I say that? Well, the last part of his name, Zedek, it was, a, it was of the Jebusite dynasty. So you know how dynasties throughout eons, the head guy, there was always somebody that followed him, such and such the fourth or such and such the fifth, and it was a, a royal dynasty name that kept being passed down. Well, Zedek is a royal line name of the Jebusites, which is why in Joshua 10, verse 1, when Joshua enters the promised land, the king that is over Jerusalem is Adonai Zedek. The same, see the same link there. And his name means the king of righteousness. Same thing. And so he's likely of that descent through Melchizedek. He was also the priest of the Most High God. Thus he was both a king and a priest. And his name and title shows, uh, shows that he reigned in righteousness and peace. Again, which is exactly what will happen when Jesus sits on his throne in Jerusalem for a thousand years. Okay, number two, Melchizedek's priesthood issued a blessing to Abraham. Jesus' priesthood also issues a blessing to everyone that gets under his authority. It's the same thing. Melchizedek issued a blessing to Abram. You too have a blessing when you get under Jesus in his priesthood. Number three, bringing tithes was a recognition of superiority. Abraham was recognizing Melchizedek's superiority, which is also one of the many things we do when we offer tithes to Jesus. Okay, don't, you know, think about this, not to get on, on too much of a tangent, but when you tithe to this church or any church or any ministry, you're not putting, you're not submitting to them. You're submitting to Jesus. That's the key differentiation. That organization has the opportunity to be a fiduciary of what Jesus is pouring out into them. But you're submitting your life to the Lord through that. And you're inviting him literally into every, every facet of your life. Because there's not one part of your life daily, by minute, that is not, is not touched by money. And that's the key to it. 
to run lights at your home, to turn on the water faucet. It all takes money. Paying taxes, eating, driving, fuel. It takes a little more money than it used to now for that. And, that's, and hopefully that'll be fixed soon. As somebody in the industry, we're, try, we're working on it, I promise. So, but that's what you're doing. You're submitting to the Lord in that way. You're submitting to the Lord's authority out of obedience. Don't worry about what they end up doing with it. It's between you and God. That's the purpose of it. It's a relationship with him. That's why in Malachi it says, Bring ye all your tithes and offerings into my storehouse. Every one of these churches is a part of the Lord's storehouse. Every one of them. It's the body of Christ. And there's a different mission, like I kind of said at the beginning, put on each one of them. Okay, similarity number four. Melchizedek was an independent high priest, just like Jesus. His genealogy was not required to establish his priesthood, like the sons of Levi, or the sons of Aaron. Number five, Melchizedek's priesthood was timeless, just like Jesus' priesthood. The Levitical priesthood could only serve from the age of 25 to 50, and that's all in Numbers chapter 8. So the Levitical priesthood had, had a definitive beginning and ending. It was not everlasting. It was set up for 25 years, and then you walked out of service. Melchizedek's priesthood ministered to all. This is similarity number six. The Levitical priesthood ministered only to the nation of Israel. Think about that. The Levitical priesthood was not for anybody outside of the nation of Israel. It was only for the Israelites. Melchizedek's priesthood, just like Jesus, is a ministry to all of the nations. It's to everyone. So it's not a specific, exclusive priesthood. It's a global one to everyone that's ever lived. Okay, so that's a, those are six ways. There's probably more, but those are at least six ways that Jesus and Melchizedek was a type or a foreshadowing of Jesus. In verse 4, now consider how great this man was unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoil. This shows that there were priesthoods greater than Aaron's before Aaron even existed. And there's even some other priesthoods in the Bible that are really mysterious. Think about Jacob. Jacob offers tithes at Bethel in Genesis 28, verse 22. And this stone which I have set for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that thou shalt give me, I will surely give the tenth unto thee. Who was he giving tithes to? You know, the Bible doesn't specify, but Jacob is participating in some type of priesthood before his son Levi and the nation of Israel are birthed. So Moses' father-in-law, remember Jethro, he was a priest in Midian in Exodus 18. When Jethro, the priest of Midian... Moses' father-in-law heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, and that the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. So where was his priesthood? The, the Bible's not clear on it. But this was, this was long after, long, I'm sorry, long, <clears throat> long after that, that Levitical priesthood. So just think about that. Jethro is, he's some kind of priest that's doing something. Okay, in verse 5, And verily that they are of the sons of Levi, who receive the office of the priesthood, have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is, of their brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. So, see, he's building this case here. Aaron and his descendants of the tribe of Levi, they came out of the loins of Abraham, and they were only commanded to take tithes of the Israelites, of their people. Melchizedek was commanded to take tithes of everyone. Thus, it's a superior priesthood. Jesus is a type, or they were a type of the priesthood that Jesus has. Thus, Jesus is a superior priesthood to the Levitical one. That's what God is trying to clearly communicate to the Jews right now, living in between Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection and the temple being destroyed. See, the temple at this time was still standing, and, so, and they were still going and offering Levitical sacrifices, and the Lord's trying to hit this head on. 
you don't have to do that. Melchizedek was a foreshadowing of the priesthood you now have access to. Okay? The Levitical priesthood received tithes only from their fellow Israelites. So it also shows, think about this, that tithing did not originate in the law. So think about everything in the Bible that shows up that did not originate in the law. The Sabbath, it, it's instituted all the way back in Genesis chapter 1. The Sabbath, it's not in the law. God says in the law to remember the Sabbath. Okay, clean and unclean animals. Ask a lot of your Christian friends, how many animals did Noah take on the ark with him? And you'll get the standard answer of two. Well, that's true, but that's two of every unclean animal. He was supposed to take seven of every clean animal. Now, why was he taking and differentiating between clean and unclean? Well, the Levitical priesthood wasn't set up yet, so how were those definitions even established? Think about that. Somehow Noah knew what was clean and unclean, and then tithing. Tithing is set up long before the law, and there's other things, but it's amazing when you do a deep study of what happened before the law, and a lot of a lot of people would like to use the fact that we're not under the law anymore as a means to not celebrate or participate in certain aspects of it. And what you can quickly do is say, well, hold on, a lot of that was established before the law. And it's established not as a requirement for you, but as a blessing. And that's the, that's the key point. The Sabbath, it's a blessing for you to have a day of rest. And I'm trying to find that science article again. As, as a lot of you know, I, I love to geek out over science in the Bible, but I saw that article somewhere that when you take a nap on, the, on a Saturday, you get a double portion of rest because of the way the Earth's magnetic field is. It's a blessing. It's a blessing for you. I'm not encouraging all of you to go and take four-hour naps you know, during the day, but if you want to use that as an, an excuse, you know, please do that. Tell your wives, look, it's Matt said, it's in the Bible, and I get a double portion, so just, I got to do this. I'm sorry, I can't mow the lawn today. You know, just, but it's there for a blessing, right? It's a blessing for all of us. Who doesn't need a day of rest? I mean, my goodness, in the world we live in, we could maybe use two days of rest. And, but the Lord instituted it to work six days and rest the seventh. And, you know, the reverse can be true, too. You can work too little. There is a danger in that. The Lord says, work six days. He wants you being productive for the kingdom in some facet. Six days. Now, what does that look like? That doesn't mean you're you know, going to your day job, your profession, but work in what way? Working for the kingdom. And, and so keep that in mind, too. Okay, verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 6 in Hebrews here. But he whose descent is not counted from them received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that had the promises. See, the Lord is calling out here, Abraham, Abram, is the one that had the promises from God, but yet Melchizedek is blessing him. So how much more superior is Melchizedek than Abram? You know, think about that. And without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the better. So Abraham, remember, he received a lot of promises from God. The land grant, that his descendants would be of the sand of the sea, and as the stars of the sky, he had a lot of promises from God. But yet, the lesser submits himself in giving tithes to the greater, and the greater blesses the lesser. And so, this mysterious priesthood of Melchizedek is greater because he's blessing Abraham, who had the promises. Okay, that's what the Lord does with us when he receives our tithes. You get a blessing— because he's the greater, and he blesses the lesser. In verse 8, And here men that die receive tithes, but there he receiveth them of whom it is witness that he liveth. So what he's saying is Levi and his descendants received tithes on behalf of God, and yet they were just mere men. They passed away. They died. They had a short lifespan. A lot of them died in the wilderness. Uh, a lot of them, a lot of them. So Jesus, who's receiving tithes from us now on behalf of his people, always has been and always will be. And that's the last part of that verse 8. He liveth. 
from one that lives. He's receiving it on your behalf. And as your high priest, he takes it into the throne room of the universe. He sets it in front of the throne, and there's a blessing poured out on you as a result. It's incredible. The most supernat- one of the most supernatural things you can do in your walk. In verse 9, And as I may say, Levi, so say, Levi also, who receiveth tithes, paid tithes to Abraham, for he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. The Hebrew language did not have an, does not still have an equivalent for the word grandfather or great-grandfather. That's why it says, yet in the loins of his father, Levi. So remember, after Abraham, there was Isaac, Jacob, then Levi. So he was a great-great-grandfather to Levi. That's why it says, yet in the loins of his father. So don't let that confuse you in the scripture either, that there's not a term for grandfather. Okay, in Hebrews 7, verse 11, If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? So if justification and perfection were attainable through the Levitical priesthood, then Jesus would not have been necessary. That's the logic the Lord is putting together here. Look at Romans 3, verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. There is no life in the law. There never was. It was a continuous repetition of seeking Something to heal something negative that happened constantly. Okay, there's, and that's what Romans 3.20 is saying. There's no life. There's no justification in the law. There's nowhere in the law that says, okay, if you do this one sacrifice, you'll be good the rest of your life. It's always, okay, you have to do this every time you do, you mess up. Every time you do this or trespass against this. It was constant repetition. And so justification, remember the three tenses of salvation, justification is once you are removed from the penalty of sin, which is death. You're removed from it. You are justified. There was no justification in the law. It could not do it. That's why Jesus had to come. Then after you're justified, you're on this this path of sanctification where you are constantly running to the feet of Jesus, maturing and growing in your walk with him, and laying everything down in the throne room of the universe on behalf of the one that can take it off of you. Then, after we are raptured or you pass away, you are glorified. It's glorification. You get a body that is immortal and without blemish, that is sin-free, and you are removed from the presence of sin itself. So, removing from the penalty of sin, removing from the power of sin in sanctification, and then removal from the presence of sin. I'm sorry, the first one's penalty of sin. So that's the order. Look at Romans 3, 24 and 26. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past, though the forebearer of God declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. See, you're being justified by the only one that is just, and that's Jesus, the justifier. In verse 12, for the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. So since the Levitical priesthood needs to be set aside, there is now a change also of the law. And this is our, our good friend, Mr. Burkle's favorite set of verses in the entire Bible, maybe. I'm guessing, but he's very passionate about this. Romans 8.1 There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life 
in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, that is, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. Now think about that. The law could had no propitiation to justify you in your sin. And so what had to happen? The Son of God, God sending his own Son in the complete divine nature of the one that spoke the universe in existence, had to come in the flesh so that flesh could condemn sin. If Jesus was not fully God and fully man, both could not be true. He had to be fully God in the form of man to justify man, you and I, in sin. So that's the only way it could happen. And at the end of verse 12, in Hebrews 7, 12, a necessity, a change also of the law. That was the change. Jesus, the justifier, had to come in the flesh to condemn and put in the grave sin once and for all. Otherwise, you and I could never have a relationship with him. No matter how hard you worked at it, no matter how hard you tried, your works will not get you to the feet of Jesus in the throne room of the universe. It's only by his blood and only by what he paid for on your behalf. And hallelujah for it. So in verse 13 in, in Hebrews chapter 7, For he of whom the things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe, of which no man gave attendance at the altar. That's a little bit of a, a weird phrase, but the Lord is continuing with this theme of Jesus in the flesh. He did not come from the tribe of Levi. He came through the tribe of Judah as a royal king, but he also is a priest. And so think about during the, the time of the 13 tribes. Remember, Joseph had two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, that Jacob adopted. That's why there's 13 names in the Bible for the tribes of Israel to choose from. And every time the Lord lists them, he always picks 12 and does it in a different order for a different reason. And those names have a hidden encrypted message in the word of God every time if you translate them to what they mean, not transliterate them to how they sound. So go and do that. It's a really fun, fun thing to do to dig that out in the word of God. But Levi was the only tribe selected to be the people's representative to God at the altar. But Jesus is the representative, and he's not from the tribe of Levi. So in their mind, they have a conundrum that, wait a minute, he can't be my priest because he's not from the tribe of Levi. And the Lord is shattering that entire model, just putting it to rest once and for all through Jesus. He was from the tribe of Judah. So the Jews, it's a major change in their mind. Melchizedek was not even from a specific tribe. So he was, they weren't even in existence yet. So God's even building that, that model for them. Okay, to close out the message here, Hebrews 7, 14 through 16. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident for that after the similitude of Melchizedek, there ariseth another priest who is made not after the law of carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. That's our Jesus, an endless priesthood. And so, to close out the message here, I haven't gone through this in a few weeks, and so I, I thought it was time again, because summertime's busy. Guys, I mean, there's always, I mean, life is busy, right? Not just the summer. But your relationship from God with God, it's, it's very easy to start to go through the repetitions and the motions just to go through the motions. And we talked about this on Bible, in Bible study here on Friday. I had a great discussion about it. You know, we talked so much about getting into the Word of God and how you have to do it daily but it's not about just the reps in it. It's about 
where the position of your heart is when you're doing it. So it's about getting into the Word of God. And honestly, if your heart's not in the right spot, getting into it can fix your heart also and get it in the right spot. But to build the faith in your life, you've got to get in the Word and get time with Jesus. And, you know, I'm, I'm guilty of saying this all the time. You can go through the Bible in one year if you just do 10 minutes a day. Forget about the 10 minutes. Just do it, however long the Lord wants you to do it. It may be 60 minutes. Uh, it may be 80 minutes. It may be to tithe part of your day, which would be 2.4 hours. Maybe that's what he wants you to do. I don't know. But you won't know either if you don't take it to him and ask him. And when you have to build your faith, you can only do it in the word of God because of Hebrews 11.1. 1, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And why is faith important? Because without it, according to Hebrews 11.6, it is impossible to please him. So you need to know how to go get it, and that's Romans 10, 17. For faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. So it's the substance of all that we hope for, which is Jesus. He is the substance of everything we hope for. And he's the evidence of what we're not seeing right now in the natural. But how do you get it? Or why is it important? It's impossible to please him. So you need to get it. You've got to do this, guys. You've got to get into the Word of God to make your walk with Jesus successful in every facet, in every way, to not neglect that relationship. And Acts 17, 11 is why you do it daily, to search the scriptures daily. That's what you've got to, be, to do. So with everything going on in the world right now, I'm sure all of you are seeing it. The persecution on the church continues to ramp up. Uh, global agendas are continuing to be pushed. There's constant talk of scarcity, right? There's constant talk of economic crashes, of real estate bubbles, of whatever. The stock market's too inflated. Inflation is going out of control. There's a lot of storms, right, on the horizon for us just living in this world. And the way that you can be confident in the midst of the storm is to invite Jesus in that boat with you, where you simply watch him look at it and go, be still. That's it. And everything in your life is still in that moment. And he will make a difference between his people and the people of the world. No matter what storm comes on, he did it all through the Exodus event in Egypt. Remember the children of Israel? They had light in their villages, they had light in their homes, they had food, their cattle were spared, all of that. He will do that same thing today, I promise you. He will do it today. You just have to invite him to take over your life. So 1 Corinthians 9, 24 and 25, don't be negligent. Run that you may obtain. And if you're here, if you're watching this online and you need to be born again, to have the authority to then repent and walk away from sin in your life, it is so simple. Praise God the Lord has made it. The easiest thing you can do in your life is to get saved. Because Romans 10, 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. It is once and for all, you have your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life before you were ever born, according to Psalms and many other passages in the Bible. And the second you do that, and you confess the Lord Jesus, and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, God takes that blood, and he traces over your name in the Lamb's Book of Life. You've been covered by the blood. And you know what? It's not the name that says Matt Freeman. It's whatever new name he has for you that you don't even know yet. But he has a name for you. He changed everyone's name in the Bible once they got saved. He has a name in mind for you. And so don't lose sight that you have a personal relationship with the creator of the universe who wants to conquer every storm that you are watching form off in the ocean right now before it hits the land. 
So with that, I'll close us in prayer. And if you need anything, please reach out to us. You can email us. You can come find us here every Sunday. If you need some help in prayer, if you need some help in ministering, grab somebody in the room. You know, it's not, this is a, a church of strong believers. So lean on each other. Lord, we just thank you so much for this time together. God, I thank you for the study in the book of Hebrews. Thank you, Jesus, that we have a, a high priest that is forever interceding on our behalf and is forever petitioning for us in the throne room of the universe with the Holy Spirit making utterances that we don't even know and praying on our behalf. Lord, we love you. We thank you again for all that you're doing in and through us. God, we are here for one purpose and one purpose alone, and that is to serve you, the Most High King, and to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for the return of our King, Jesus. And so, Father, as we live out that message and that, that mission statement daily, we pray that you would make our paths straight. We pray that, Lord, wherever we are in our communities, that we would be light bearers, overflowing with oil, just like those that were ready for your arrival in Matthew 25 to enter into the wedding. Let us be that ready every day and not forsake the relationship we have with you. Thank you, Lord. We pray that you'd be with all of us as we leave this place and as this word goes out. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen.